In my workshop, there's one thing that gets used almost as much as my Allen wrenches, and that is my Feedback Sports work stand. For five or so years, there's virtually always been a bike hanging in it, yet it still looks brand new. It's still solid, and the moving parts still slide freely and smoothly. So don't let founder Doug Hudson's laid-back voice and surf-trippin' ski-bomb backstory fool you. First, he and a college buddy started what's now one of the most iconic messenger bag companies around. He then sold his stake and used clever design and strategic acquisitions to grow Feedback Sports into a premium bicycle storage and tool brand. Here is his story. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. Doug, before you had Feedback Sports, you and a buddy founded Chrome Bags, right? Yeah, that's right. How'd uh, that come about? Um, that was, um, a lot of people think Chrome was originally from San Francisco, but actually we started it in Colorado in 1994. And um, I think I'll go back a couple years earlier than that, just for some context. Um, Mark Falve, my, um, the other founder with me, we were roommates at the University of Florida, and we were um, uh, both engineering students, but really we met through surfing and skateboarding and eventually got into to, uh, mountain biking there in Gainesville. Um, that was the you know, 1991 type of time frame. Um, and we... Um, one summer we took a trip, we had a, a van and loaded it up with bikes and surfboards and camping gear and, and uh, headed across the country and traveled for actually a couple months. It was an awesome trip. So fast forward to 1994, we were working at a ski resort in, in Colorado after graduating from college. So surf bum to ski bum. That's right. <laughs> So that was actually the early days of snowboarding too. So we were oh, snowboarding, um, not in Aspen, but we were working at snow. Aspen didn't allow snowboarding, but uh, Snowmass did, and it was that was an awesome time to be there. But we we just decided, hey, let's start a company. And I think when you're just out of school, that's a really good time to do this because you're risk is pretty low. You basically don't have many liabilities. I mean, there's no house, no spouse, no kids. And um, we didn't really know what we were getting into, but we just went for it. But how did you come up with that idea? Because you weren't messengers, and yet you came up with a company to do messenger bags. Yeah, so originally it was um, actually shorts, so baggy shorts and baggy jerseys for mountain biking. And those were also the early days, that was kind of during the mountain biking first boom. And so we, the first thing we designed was actually a baggy pair of shorts. And we took those out to Mammoth, the, I think it was the Kamikaze downhill was going summer 1994. And we met a bunch of we went to Interbike in that same year, and I was probably before Interbike, but we designed a, a messenger bag, and I'm pretty sure we had it there at the first Interbike. And that definitely was gaining momentum, but it wasn't until a couple years later that we went um, exclusively bags. So we were doing, we, 
we went overboard one year. We were making jeans, jackets, of course the bags, um, and that was actually a a mistake early on. Yeah, that that's a lot of capital title. Like, where did you, fresh out of college and working ski bum jobs, like, where in the world did you come up with the money to do this? Yeah, we, we, it was tight. I mean, we definitely ran a super frugal uh, business, but we, I remember in Snowmass, there was a bank called the Alpine Bank, and somehow they loaned us $5,000 <laughs> and they used my truck as collateral, I had. Was it worth five thousand dollars? <laughs> it was probably worth about eight. Oh, wow. <laughs> and they, yeah, they loaned us five thousand dollars, and that was uh, enough to start a clothing company. Yeah, we wow. we a few, you know a few months into it, we I um, we were racking up some credit card charges pretty pretty heavily. Um, but that's just, so actually that's one bit of advice. If somebody's thinking about starting a company and they have a job, they should try to get as much credit as possible. <laughs> I don't know if that's good advice, I guess. <laughs> I, maybe, yeah, you may not read that in, in the, the how-to books, but I firmly believe that. So I'm talking credit cards, um, you know, in if whatever asset you have, you can borrow against it, whether it's a house or a car. As long as you, if you paid for your car, you you can actually use that as collateral to to get a loan. It, at least we could back in the mid nineties. But you uh, still can. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so neither of us had one thing that we didn't have coming out of school was student loan debt. So um, I think that's harder to achieve nowadays. But back then, I mean, I, Florida was not that expensive, really. I mean, yeah. I think I paid 1200 bucks a semester or something like that. So um, I didn't, we didn't have that burden, which was, was nice. Um, so yeah, I mean, literally 5000 bucks got us, that was the first money what was the had. first production run like? I mean, you were in Colorado. Was it, is it where was the stuff made, and like how many pairs of shorts and shirts did you have? We okay. So um, also, you have to remember during that time the internet wasn't prevalent at all. So we basically had to. It took longer to figure figure things out, but at the time, you know, Denver, Boulder area. There was some, um, you know, a lot of outdoor gear was being made, backpacks, and so there was vendors that were selling fabric, buckles, webbing, all right in the Denver area. So we somehow we found one of those vendors, and then they would lead us to somebody else who would lead us to somebody else. So it was really uh, meeting with people is is the key. So the fabric guy introduced us to somebody that made patterns, you know, could help us design, design the bags um, or the shorts. But I think the first run of shorts, so, and, and then we also found uh, cut and sew places in Denver. Um, so um, we as engineers, we basically taught ourselves how to, to, um, make the patterns for the shorts. I mean, we did a lot of reverse engineering, just cutting up old uniform pants and trying to figure out how to do the sizing and all. I mean, you couldn't find this stuff online. You just, we were, <laughs> we were winging, winging a lot of it. Um, but I think probably the first run we might have made, a, you know, bought a roll of fabric and made 50 pairs of shorts something like that and of course we had t-shirts and you know that's kind of the easy thing to do um, and then we made a, um, like a cool max jersey that just basically looked like a t-shirt but it had pockets on the back was there and anybody else doing like baggy mountain bike stuff back then it was so the only 
company around was Swobo out of San Francisco, and then Zoic was also coming out of San Francisco at that time. And we didn't, we didn't even know, we knew about Swobo, um, and we met Zoic, the original guys from Zoic, on a trip to San Francisco. Uh, so it was very early days. Uh, they're, yeah, so it was a good time to come out with the baggy uh, clothing line. I think Bicycle Retailer one time, that's a industry magazine, they called us the, the veterans of baggy mountain bike clothing. <laughs> and that was like one year into, the, into it. <laughs> and then the bags, what led to a bag? Just you needed something to haul those shorts around in? Or? Yeah, I can't remember the exact reason we did it. Um, but very, we designed a bag, you know, we wanted to make a messenger style bag. And then at the time, Schwinn was in Boulder. And this was when Schwinn was really cool again. And they, they had nice mountain bikes and a team and they were really rolling. So we somehow met some of the guys at Schwinn and they wanted us to make a bag for them. And we came up with the idea to use uh, the metal flake vinyl that they use on the banana seats. So we made a messenger bag out of that. And they, they loved, you know, we made a prototype, they loved it and ordered several hundred of those <laughs> right off the bat. So that was, the, that really got us in, you know, strongly into the bag bag business. Then did those originals have the seatbelt buckle? Because that's become kind of an iconic they did not. part of the current no. bag. How, when did those come along? That didn't come on for probably four, four or five years after. So um, you'll still see these Schwinn bags around if you see. I think we made, we made blue, red, green, silver and there was a few gold ones out there some rare gold metal flake bags but um, they still they're still around they they were built to last forever <laughs> I mean this those fabric was made it's like bass boat seating uh, which is fabric. gotta be tough right yeah water and the bicycle seats too I imagine yeah nice yeah so no but it did not have the seat buck seat um, buckle buckle straps yeah. so and these were being made these first bags were also being made in Colorado yeah every everything that we made was made in Colorado and eventually you did move to California yes and um, why that was after so I mentioned earlier I had an engineering degree so four years into Chrome uh, opportunity came up in a startup in Boulder in fiber optics and um, I bailed I bailed on Chrome and went went high-tech um, and at, so when a third guy from Florida Bart had joined us maybe a year and a half after we started so Bart and Mark con continued and then they moved to San Francisco for, I think around 2000 um, and those guys actually are the current owners of Mission Workshop. So they also eventually, well, they sold Chrome. And um, now they're back in the bag and clothing business right. with Mission Workshop. Some high-end stuff. And Mission yeah. Workshop's very nice stuff. Yeah. So did you bow out of Chrome or did you sell, sell out to those guys, sell your shares? or? Yeah, I sold, sold my shares, uh, which for a... A uh, sort of embarrassingly small amount of money, <laughs> which is actually another tip to people. Um, when you, you know, the whole partnership thing and all is kind of complicated. It was easy, you know, at the beginning, Mark and I 50%, then Bart came on and we gave him some shares for his work. You know, he probably worked for nothing for a year and got part of the company, uh, which was totally worth it. Um, and then when I left, I actually stayed on for to 
helped them for, I don't know, about a year just doing some of the accounting. But then it was just too much with my job. I couldn't, I couldn't help them enough to justify the ownership that I had. But, and that was actually fine. It wasn't any pressure to, to make a deal. But I remember one of the turning points was they needed money and they had um, sort of negotiated a line of credit from the bank. And the bank, bankers, of course, were like, oh, who's Doug? You know, he's got 45% of the company or whatever it was at that point. We need him to sign the, the bank documents. And at that point, I said, no, time out. I'm not signing those. I've got, I'm the only one with a, you know, getting a paycheck every two weeks. So um, at that point was when I sold them my shares. And it was, it was fine, you know. Um, at the time, it was, a, I felt it was fair. Um, but in hindsight, um, maybe I should have kept 5% or 10%. <laughs> so that would be a tip. Just if you sell, keep a little bit of the shares. <laughs> All right. So you went from there to oh, fiber I, optics. Yeah, right? fiber optics in the late, uh, in 1999. Yeah, and then you stuck with that for a few years because then it was 2004, I guess, when the seed for feedback spores was planted, but didn't really start then. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I followed the, the tech boom of the late 90s, the internet boom, and of course that crashed, you know, in the 2000, and then after 9-11, it was a pretty, uh, it wasn't a fun industry to be in, but actually I made a pretty, I made a good career out of it, and uh, sort of worked my way up through, I was the eighth person at the startup, and then we were up to 100 and 40 people or something like that. So it was a really good experience that I definitely has helped me with um, the current situation. You know, seeing a, I saw that, well, I did this startup with Chrome, which was just basically, we didn't know what we were doing, but we learned uh, so much. I mean, every day you're learning something new. And then to go into the high tech world and see. Um, super fast growth with venture capital backing and you know super high pressure um, and then that company was eventually bought by a publicly traded company so I went through all that pain um, but it was good but the whole probably four years into it I was thinking how do I get back into the bike industry because I don't see myself doing fiber optics for 30 years you know it's just not not that fun of an industry well, without getting too far ahead of ourselves what when you see a company grow from you know eight people the fiber optic one not chrome to like you said a little over 100 or so like what were some of the lessons that you picked up on there that ended up becoming valuable at feedback um one of the one of the main ones was just being organized. Um, for instance, when I started in the fiber, in the fiber optic company, they, the people were just putting the infrastructure into place and they put in things like a document control system, which to me was coming from Chrome. I thought it was just silly what are you guys doing? You're creating this, um, you're creating a system to hold uh, documents, um, an electronic system. So whether it was mechanical drawings or specs or catalogs or price list, it was all in a system that you couldn't change those documents until you got approval from somebody else. So I thought, this is ridiculous, it's so bureaucratic and slow. But later I realized this is, it's so powerful, you know. Two or three years, four years into it, you could go and click on a product and get all the information that you needed about that product. It was all there. 
And so I don't know that I would have ever been exposed to that if I had just stayed in a super small startup like Chrome. So now with feedback, I mean, we have two engineers, they're using SolidWorks, you know, they've got a, a vault system where they can't make changes um, or two people can't be making changes at once on the same document and all. So you, you see the, what seems not important actually turns out to be important. So that's one example of, a, of something that I saw there. So what was the timeline? Because you, you told me earlier, feedback technically started in 2004, but it wasn't until 2009 that you had a product? Uh, we had a product in 2004, so, oh, okay. but it was just me. Um, <laughs> you were one the product. product. <laughs> one product. Uh, so the original feedback product was the scale to weigh bikes. Uh, called the Alpine Scale. We still sell it today. Most bike shops around the country and some around the world have this thing. And so I designed that in 2004 and I found a factory in China to make it. And um, this was just a side project. I mean, at the time, you know, whenever you went to ride a bike, people would say, oh, how much does your bike weigh? I'm not, I don't know, you know, I'm not going to take it into the bathroom and weigh it on my bathroom scale. So I had been thinking about this product probably for two years. And finally my wife kind of just got sick of me talking about it and said, <laughs> just, you know, just do it. So I, I, um, just dug into it. And at the time, so then the internet was, you know, more prevalent. So you could, you could research and I found uh, a factory that was making fishing scales and bathroom scales and so um, luckily I convinced the guy, the owner of that factory, a um, Chinese um, guy that went to school in Canada, you know, he spoke English perfectly and same age as me so we kind of hit it off and yeah, he he believed, you know, that we could sell sell some of these, so I paid for the tooling, and um, you know, the first couple iterations weren't exactly what I thought it was going to be, but it hit actually pretty quickly with the correct product, and that was 2004. So I took vacation from my job and went to Interbike, and my wife and I were off in a corner booth. And people that saw it was like, wow, that's, I, we had one product. Was there nothing else like that? I mean, it seems like such a simple idea. And I know Park has a scale and yeah, maybe we, one other brand. This was the first one, it. yes. And, um, I, yeah, it was the only one. How much of the design, because it's a good looking scale, and you know, it's got a nice rubberized exterior, so it's rough because stuff in a bike shop gets beat around, but... How much of that design was yours versus just an off-the-shelf scale that you put your colors on? Um, pretty, it was all uh, my design. So there was nothing um, like that. It, well, there was fishing scales. I mentioned the factory made a fishing scale, but they were quite a bit smaller, and the hooks were hooks were smaller, and the the feature the the uh, column that comes out of the bottom was made to be like a seat post so that you could put it in a work stand and grab uh, the seat post feature. So all of that mechanical design was all mine. Um, the guts of it, uh, actually electrical part, I'm an electrical engineer, but that was more, the, that was easier. It was more specking. Okay, what, what do you want the resolution to be, the max weight, um, I can't even remember all, all the specs behind it, but it was more of a specking of the the guts of the the electronics. And when you you designed it, I guess in CAD or what did you design? Uh, actually, I have since being, I'm a mechan I'm an electrical engineer. I don't I can't do CAD or SolidWorks. So I had a buddy who does that. He 
he drew it up in CAD, and then I just took the file to the sent the file to the factory. Right, and this was so you have a file, and this was pre Alibaba dot com. How like where did you even start to find an overseas manufacturer? Yeah, actually, it's funny you mentioned Alibaba because this was the early days of Alibaba. Oh, really? Okay. And that's where I found this guy. <laughs> and what did you search? You just searched like scale manufacturer. Yeah, digital and... scales or you know fishing scales maybe is what I was somehow found. Right. And now I think it's harder because there's so much noise on that site uh, because you can't tell if it's really a factory or if it's just a sort of middleman sales organization, trading company. But at the time it was mostly just factories. So I think I only even, I contacted two or three factories and the guy that's still making the scale today, he, he got back to me and, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's been what twelve years ago now. Wow. So what was the second product? Second product was a tabletop scale. Okay. So people were asking, hey, you know, the hanging scale has a ten gram resolution, so people wanted to weigh titanium bolts, so they wanted a tabletop scale. Naturally, yes, because <laughs> it matters. <laughs> and that was a pretty easy, you know. Once again, we just came up with. Sort of the, just the look, the look of it, basically for that one, yeah. And then the third product. Third product, uh, we because the bike specific scale went up to fifty pounds. We were getting some calls for backpackers. You know, hey, can this go up higher than fifty? So we made a. Uh, we just spec'd another scale and changed the color and made it go up to hundred pounds. And at that time, what year I, was that? That was probably 2007. Okay. Uh, one key point, though, that I didn't mention was at that first Interbike, I met a company called Ultimate Support, who was making, they were in Colorado and they were making uh, work stands. So their main product was actually musical stands, speaker stands, keyboard stands, guitar stands, but they had a small bike division and um, they saw the scale thought, wow, this fits into our work stand, let's work together. So I said, great, you know, I've still got this, I got a job, I'll get the scales made and you guys sell them. So that was a result of that first, first interbike. And um, that was going fine. You know, the scale was just sort of a side project, hobby type of thing that what, I was doing. What was the arrangement? Did you guys sell it to them at wholesale and then they turned around and sold it again to wholesale at the stores? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, would, I would buy, let's say, 500 scales from the factory. And the first shipment came to my garage. <laughs> um, but then the next shipment, I shipped straight to the, the ultimate support warehouse. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I had kind of a smaller margin, and then they would make um, their margin and sell it, to, sell it to the shops. And then, I guess, the tables turned eventually, right? Yeah. You ended up buying them? That's right, yeah, which I never thought would happen. Um, they started having some, I guess, some financial troubles a few years into it. And the owner sold the music business, which was their main business. And then he had left this, um, some pretty cool bike products, but really didn't focus on it at all. I mean, I don't think the owner had ever been to Interbike or any bicycle event. Of course, in the company, there were some bike guys that were really into it, but the owner wasn't. So I was just kind of watching the whole thing, and and then he 
you know, we, I would talk with the employees and they said, yeah, you know, he's, he wants to sell. So I started talking to him and we worked out a deal. And at the time, it was, there was basically three people left at the company. And, uh, all working on bike at that point? It was all bike at that point. This was two, late 2007, 2008. And so I actually uh, worked a deal, mortgaged the house, maxed out credit cards. <laughs> <laughs> again? Yeah, again. <laughs> um, and, you know, closed the deal. Two of the guys, my operations guy, Kent, and my sales guy, Ford, they were originally at Ultimate. They joined me. They're still with me now. And uh, we've been growing ever since. I mean, I, I had to leave my job at that point, which was really scary. I mean, we, I had a wife, one kid, another kid on the way, house. Um, as I mentioned earlier, that's when it's scarier to do something like this. You know, when you're young and just out of school, not that big of a deal. Once you have mouths to feed, it's a yeah, totally different you... story. Yeah. So, um, but in hindsight, it was the, you know, really great move. Um, we've been growing ever since. You know, we're up to 11 people. We're sold in, I think it's up to 40 countries now. Wow. Um, so it's, it's, uh, we've introduced a, a ton of new products since those days. Uh, so it's, it's been a, so how, um, how different is the current work stand from the original one that ultimate had? Um, there's some s subtle differences. Um, they had, and those stands are still around too, because they're like ours, they're they're made to last a long time. Uh, the the ultimate version had the round legs, and they were offset. So, uh, it's, yeah, you if you saw yeah, you, so the 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 legs kind of wrapped around the uh, the mast tube. You guys just made more of a telescoping design, I guess. Yeah, we just small. went straight in. It's it's um, so what. Did you guys continue on with the same manufacturer that Ultimate was using, or did you have to go find a new one? We did initially. Because um, were they making that stuff in-house, or was it... Outsourced? No, at the time that I came into the picture, they actually had three factories. <laughs> one in Malaysia, one in China, and one in Taiwan, which was very challenging to try to coordinate all of that. So... Um, Eventually, we consolidated everything into the Taiwan factory. Um, and that was, there was definitely some pain involved in that. Uh, but, you know, the, the um, communication and the quality from the Taiwan factory was, was really high. The relationship, uh, Kent, my operations guy, he had been working with this factory for almost 20 years. So, um, super nice people and, and easy to get along with and good communication. So we consolidated there and it's actually, it costs a little bit more, but it, it's just much better logistically. So, and you guys have a good product. Like, I mean, I use your work stand and your scales and, and now your tools, which we'll get to the tools in a little bit, but what do you think led to the growth? Because you said once you guys took it over, you really started growing. What was it? What triggered that? Um, a couple things. One was attention and some passion. You know, it was pretty, it wasn't, yeah, I think they had kind of lost the, the owner really wasn't into it anymore. So uh, when I came into the picture, they weren't shipping you know, they owed vendors a bunch of money, and it was just sort of an ugly situation. So it needed some money, um, and it needed somebody or some people that had passion around cycling and knew the industry. And um, so that was really it. it. It just needed attention, 
So you went into this with to a product that you know <laughs> it looked good. And I guess it, it was good, but they owed money, and the company, for all outside appearances, looked like it was going down. Like what? What about it? What did you see in it that said, "Yeah, you know what? I think I can save that." It was the product, right? Yeah, just the product. You know the um, the the original engineers that designed that. They did a good job, and that was about to just go away. Literally, they were just gonna shut it, shut it all down. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of like finding an old classic car and fixing it up because you don't want it to go to the junkyard. Right. <laughs> so, really, the product, you know, um, we the name Ultimate was sold to the music. Um, business and we had uh, the scale was always under the brand feedback that was the original feedback device so we just rolled the the work stands under under the feedback brand and um, which was good because the shops knew you know I mentioned a lot of shops had the scale oh yeah feedback guys okay yeah they're they're making these stands now that's great you know we know we know kind of know who they are um, it took of course there's a lot of work in the background you know there was dealers that you know ultimate hadn't delivered to in six months and all this kind of situation but did you have to make good on all those um yeah i mean if there was old orders when we got the product in we, we delivered yeah fulfilled it I mean, we probably lost some dealers during that time, but over the years, they they've come back. Okay. So the, you had the original work stand, which was the tall, normal work stand you see people working on their bikes with, and then you came up with the the fork mount. Yeah, fork mount. The, the yeah. sprint. Thank you. And then more recently, you guys made another acquisition. Yeah. Sport rollers. Yeah, the sport sport crafters. Sport crafters. Yeah, it's a company. That's, that's based in um, Indiana. They came up with a portable trainer concept and, and made made some and were selling them. But uh, they, uh, the owner of Sport Crafters, he also has a bike shop in Indiana, so he knew our stands and, and liked them and approached us at Interbike uh, maybe two two years ago, three years ago, and... Showed us his his um, trainers trainer concept, and I thought, man, this is really cool. You know, people know us for portable the portable work stands, the portable storage racks. Um, so let's make a if we team up with this guy, we can make a portable trainer. So uh, Pete is his name. We worked out a deal where he had a couple patents that I bought from him, and. Uh, paid him to take over the um, production and sale of the product because he could he was he likes to to come up with things but he doesn't really want to get into the making them making them and marketing and all that so um he's you know i have he's he's a consultant to us now and he'll he's with us at the trade show so he it's a it's a good situation he can you know, come up with new things, and we'll we'll uh, go out and sell sell them and make them, and he makes some money too. So the guys that you brought with you from Ultimate, the two that stayed on and are still with you, what what are their roles? Uh, Kent is my um, sort of director of operations, so he does all the logistics and dealing with the the factory, shipping orders. Uh, all of that. He also does things like the uh, payroll. Um, but and in Ford, he was an inside sales guy at Ultimate. So when he joined, he was also doing inside sales, dealing with our reps and shops. But now he's solely focused on international sales. Okay. So the engineers that you have, you said you had two engineers, right? Yes. 
But with the the first scale, you outsourced that. You had a buddy who knew CAD, do the CAD drawings for you. So for a company like yours, that's it's not like you guys are launching products every couple months. I'm kind of curious, like how do you justify having two engineers on staff? Like what do they do, and like what what was the decision process in saying, yeah, this? Yeah, that's a really. I need good. to add those two salaries to my payroll. That's a really good question, and I think it's a big part of how we differentiate ourselves from other companies because we do all of our own designs um, and so we ha you have to invest to do that so you need you need um, an, at least one engineer on staff to, to be able to really do that so um, for the first couple years it was just me and Kent and Ford um, and my wife helping, a little, you know, with bookkeeping. And we, I interacted with maybe three different contract engineering firms. So these are companies that you go to and say, hey, I've got this design. Can you draw it up for me? And it worked somewhat. But it's also very frustrating because um, any change that you want to make, it just just the dollars start flying out. So you, then you start to hesitate to make changes that you know you want to make because it's just costing so much money to <laughs> to get the design, and you're not with them every day. So you just meet them every two or three weeks or once a month, and they come back with all these designs that are not exactly what you want so the process takes longer and it costs more um, so when you have an engineer in-house then you can change the product as many times as you want I mean because they're they're getting paid um, a salary so so you know it takes longer to launch the product but you don't feel like you're you're limited by how many iterations that you can do. Yeah. And it's surprising how busy they are. I mean, we just added Mike, our second engineer, um, two years ago? Yeah, two years ago. Um, so there's, there's design work and each each of these little, we're looking at the trainer here, each of these little parts has to be designed. There's a drawings, um, testing that's gone into it, first article, inspections, you know, making sure each part meets the drawing. It just takes a, it takes a long time. And then after the product's launched, there's usually some thing that you end up having to change because it's hard, too hard to make or or didn't work out exactly the way you want it. Um, and then there's what they call sustaining engineering. So somebody calls and, and um, has a question. Well, the engineers are the most in tune with, with the product. So they get involved in customer discussions production discussions, visiting the factory. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's a full-time job. And I, yeah, I don't really see how to not have the engineers on staff. Okay, the, the most recent introduction for you guys are the tools, which you've got three tool sets. One's just a T-handle Allen wrench, hex set yep. uh, and then you've got kind of like a travel size set and then a full on pro mechanic set all of them come in these little zip up cases for travel and what impressed me when I first saw them at the trade shows last fall was the quality and some of the unique little features I mean they're, they're just really well thought out and what you guys told me about them at the time is this was kind of like alright well you know we've been working on our bikes for a while and you know we travel with our bikes this is the stuff you really need, and it's true. Like they're, the selection of parts in them is good. Uh, 
what is it about these that maybe it was difficult to manufacture or I guess the question is kind of like when you went to get these manufactured, like you said, they're all your own designs. Um, there's obviously cheap tools and there's expensive tools. You know, you, the cheap ones are like the little branded mini toolkits that you can get from the same kit from different pieces, different <laughs> places. They all have a different name on it, but it's the same exact stuff and they're, yeah. they're flexy and flimsy and crappy. Um, and then there's really nice tools. How do you go about that? Do you just have to spec certain metals or do you go to a manufacturer and say, look, I want the good stuff. <laughs> how, do, how do I get the good stuff? Yeah. Um, you, well, a couple comments. One is um, this took a lot longer than we expected because when, of those type of, those questions. When uh, did you start working on them? Um, we started, we, so we launched them this sept September of 2016. We started working on it in the fall of 2014. Oh, wow. So two years. And actually I had visited four or five tool factories two years before that, like in 2012 or 13. And so it, it's been in our minds for, for, you know, we were making work stands, so people asked us from the early days, hey, why don't you guys make tools? Ah, okay, yeah, mate, you know, eventually we might do that. Um, so it took um, a lot of investigative work on the factory side. It wasn't as easy as the scale, you know, and I found, but got lucky, basically, mm -hmm. and found the scale scale guy. The tools is such a, it's a, for one, it's a, it's a bigger industry. It's sort of commoditized. There's a lot of players, not just in bike, but all over. I mean, every hardware store you go into, there's a, hundreds of tools. So it's a big, it's a big business. So um, to find a partner that could help us with the design and also get the different... Um, types of tools consolidated into one place um, is why it took a couple of years to do that. I mean, we, we found a partner really two years ago, but it still uh, took that long to get it all um, coordinated. And actually the cases, this goes back to my Chrome days, I, we found a... Um, case manufacturer and they did a couple prototypes of some of some drawings we made it didn't wasn't what we wanted I went to the factory and it was actually it felt like I was back at chrome I was telling <laughs> no so this here and so that there and they actually made a prototype there while I was while I was in the factory um, so um, yeah, as far as the metals and the processes, you know, it, you as you get into it, you learn about the different metals, whether it's carbon steel or CRV or S2. You know, S2 is the is the um, higher end, sort of the highest end metal right now, uh, which we used on our hex hex tools. Um, was it when you guys are doing because they are unique? You know, you're not just branding a pre-existing set of tools as your own. Was it hard to convince a factory to do it? Because in my mind, I'm just sitting here envisioning them saying, "Oh no, well, let me just show you our catalog." And I mean, that is because you must have also had to produce enough of them for the factory to justify opening all these molds, and for you guys to justify paying for the molds for the the rubber grips. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, it you've been a big investment. It's definitely a big investment, which we paid for. They didn't front any of this, so we um, there's definitely um, you have to convince a factory that you're going to sell, and you know they saw our brand and you know, our products being used at the highest level of the sport and um, we're in, 
this particular company has no products in the bicycle industry at all. So um, they liked liked our company and thought, hey, maybe this is some a, a new you know a new category for them, and feedback would be a way to to um, break into it. Break into that. Um, so yeah, we. We convinced them that we could sell some decent quantities, you know, but we had to invest. I mean, they weren't going to um, make these molds and uh, tooling just because uh, we said we were going to sell a lot. Yeah, so they were like, okay, yeah, we'll do it, but you got to pay X amount for every right. every tool. And that was a, a definitely a big investment, I think. It pays off in the end, though. If you if we just went to the Taipei Cycle Show and found some stamped steel tool and put our logo on it, I I think it's not not gonna that ends up hurting your reputation. That's right. <laughs> Those are not good tools. Um, so I think you said you had to convince them they would sell. I think probably before that you probably had to convince yourself they would sell, and so. You're going up against really like I mean Park Tool is a monster company and they make great stuff. Like, why did you think you could sell tools against that or like what was the how did you do your market research? A lot of it is uh, is just sort of going with your gut, which you know doesn't always work. Uh, but we definitely talked to. Uh, some of our bigger customers, um, and there was some general interest in it. You know, nobody commits fully until they actually see the product, so you kind of have to just go go for it, which we did. I mean, one of the inspirations for these kits and the way that we've selected the tools, I mean, we, um, out of the 11 of us at the office, 10 of us, are riding bikes a lot so we you know we're doing a lot of work on our bikes and traveling to races and events and camping trips and you know I had this big big plastic toolbox full of a bunch of stuff that I really wasn't using and my family and we were going on a camping trip to Fruta and we had so much crap in the car that I could not fit the toolbox in there. So I opened it up and just started picking out tools that I knew I was going to use. And it was a pretty small handful of tools that you actually use. And put it in like a Tupperware, little Tupperware container and that fit in the car. So we wanted to make a set of tools with things that you are actually going to use on a modern bike um, and make it as compact as possible. Try to combine tool, you know, two tools into one to cut down on the, on the number of tools and then put it in a case that's small enough to travel with. Um, so, and, and I think the, Tool selection is a reflection of actually being out there and doing, working on your bike. I mean, we have, I, one of the things that I have to have is a, is a valve core remover. I mean, whether I'm putting stands in my mountain bike tire or screwing around with my tubular cross wheels, I use that thing all the time. I don't, I don't know of any kit that comes with a valve core remover. Or something simple like this pick. You know, you're always yeah, picking some <laughs> something out of your your cassette or open hollowing out a, a cable that you just cut. So I you know, we'd fit a lot of thought into the selection too. That was definitely always a market for premium stuff. You know, somebody's gonna buy the nice stuff, the people who get it. But yeah. the like the that initial investment, did you guys ever consider doing a Kickstarter campaign to launch these and kind of get it crowdfunded before you had to 
plunk all the money down on your own? Uh, not really. I feel like Kickstarter is for non-established brands. I mean, I know some brands are have done it and done it successfully, but I just didn't. I mean, actually, in hindsight, luckily we didn't because we probably would have launched the Kickstarter two years ago and <laughs> it would have taken two years to, to deliver. Yeah. <laughs> so how are they doing? Are they selling well for you? They, yeah, they are. Um, you know, we're, this, it's January. We're talking in January here, so it's kind of the slow season. But, um, yeah, we, we launched them at Eurobike and Interbike. We sold out of our first... Um, batch which was a good sign um and now we're coming into the spring is a really march april may are some of our busiest times so we're we're coming into that and you know got our fingers crossed that uh, we're gonna we're gonna uh, do well what's been really awesome has been the response from the like the professional mechanics so we um, i just saw you out at cyclocross nationals and a um, couple teams had these in the pit. Um, was that sponsorship there. deals, or did they buy them with their own team funds? At least I know the Cannondale guys are is a sponsorship deal, um, but they've told me they they like them. Um, Joe Devere, their mechanic, he he's had them here in the states, and then he he took a quick trip to Europe and didn't have them. He told me he missed <laughs> having them. He should have brought them brought them with him uh so that's really cool to hear when those uh top pro mechanics are are happy with them yeah when that when you guys did the first batch you said you sold out how many sets was that uh, um, i i don't remember exactly <laughs> i yeah, I think it's probably five. It was right? Yeah, five hundred. I think was their first shipment in. And then, how many? You don't have to tell me. Tell us numbers, numbers. But like, how many sets, or how long did you guys see this needing to go before it covered the cost of the molds and everything else? Like, how long? How do you amortize? You know. Yeah. The whole setup process and cost for something like this. Yeah. Basically, we we knew it's it's there's sort of some some easy calculations that you can do. Basically, um, once you start getting the cost of the tools, and then you set your selling price, just looking at the profit and seeing how long it will take for that profit to pay off the tooling. I actually don't have the calculation in my head for these. Uh, I don't think we've, we haven't, certainly haven't paid off the tooling yet, but I kind of look at this as just a long-term investment. I mean, some of these tools, we could be making these for 10, 15 years with the same tooling, so... Does the factory finance the tooling for you guys, or do you have to get a bank loan outside and pay the factory 100% up front? We paid 100% up front. Not up front, so we they did extend us some terms, you know, so... Is that typical for a Taiwanese or a Chinese factory, or any, I mean, any factory? Um, actually, no, let's take that back. We had to give them, uh, it was between 30 and 40% up front. Um, and then when they got the tooling, once we approved the tooling, then I think we got another 30 days to... To pay, to pay it. Um, that is not typical. The less established you are, the more likely you're going to have to pay all of it up front. Right on. So somebody listening maybe wants to start, not necessarily a tool company, but you know some sort of like accessory or thing, brand. Yeah. What's maybe one or two pitfalls you'd warn them against or pieces of advice based on 
your experience? Um, well, there's sort of the financial side, the partnership side, or the sourcing side. All of them have pitfalls. Um, I think one, one bit of advice that I mentioned even back in the Chrome stories was just meeting people and, and finding people that are making something similar and just try to, you know, find out how they're doing it. But even, even suppliers, like I mentioned, okay, we found the guy that was selling fabric and then he knew cut and sew places or designers. So once you kind of um, meet a supplier or two, it's going to lead to to other suppliers. You know, on the financial side, I mentioned earlier, just get as much credit as you can <laughs> from the from the very beginning. Especially if you have a job, it's easy. It seems easy to get credit cards. You know, you can get a $15,000 credit limit credit card pretty easily. Yeah, it's, it's scary how easily I got credit in college with no job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when you, once you get it, if you have a job too, it's even easier. And they used to, <laughs> I don't know if they still do this, but I would get checks in the mail, you know, on a monthly basis that just said, hey, use me. And it's a, it's a 3%. <laughs> Three percent. I still get those. <laughs> yeah, zero percent for a year or something like that. I mean, they'll charge you some ridiculous fee. You know, it's like a three percent fee up front. But hey, if they're gonna it's give 3% you three percent annual interest, right? right? If they're gonna give you a year <laughs> to pay off five thousand bucks, take it. Um, and I also think a lot of people people don't think about this. Um, They'll rush out to get partners. Like, oh, I'm going to, my friend's got some money. I'm going to bring them into the business and, you know, they're going to put some money into it. That could get really um, complicated quickly. And, I, I mean, I haven't seen any business gurus say this, but I'd rather have a credit card bill of $50,000 than a partner that put $50,000 in because the credit card bill, you don't have to call them, you know, every two weeks to tell them what you're doing or why you invested in some crazy new product. Um, you know, it's hard to dig out of a hole of, of debt, but it's also hard to deal with complicated financial partners you know i'd rather well, especially if they're friends i mean it can ruin friendships yeah you know? yeah and going back to um the chrome days mark and i were awesome friends going into it there was some stressful times i mean with you know not a lot of money around we we um came out of it as still good friends, um, and I still see him at least once a year, and and, and uh, you know he's a good friend. So that actually was um, a good good story. I mean, I've heard a lot of other ones that don't don't end like that, and it's usually because people rush into something, or yeah, you know they they think. They need, um, yeah, it's usually financial and people are trying to get money quickly and they don't work out, they don't work through all the details and it just turns into a mess. So that's why I'd rather just, if you can, if you can get a credit card or borrow against your truck or your house, it's scary, it's scary, but it, it's, I don't know, I think it's, it's uh, easier in the long run. Doug, thanks for the time for your time, man. It was great hearing your story. Yeah, thanks for, for listening. 
Okay, so I'll be honest. I'm a little torn about recommending Doug's financial advice. I've had investors, and yes, it does add a layer of complexity, but it can also bring in a lot more capital than most recent grads or dropouts are probably going to have access to. That said, if you can swing it, I'd go for it. I've never feared debt, and it definitely makes you better appreciate each dollar you're laying out to grow your business. But in the end, you've got to balance your comfort level, credit access, and willingness to complicate either your professional or your personal relationships in the quest to launch and grow your company. Of course, there's always crowdfunding too, which has rapidly become not just a viable source of startup capital, but also a killer way to prove your concept before going all in. Did you like this podcast? If so, please subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher, and you'll definitely want to catch episode three with Press Camp founder Lance Kamasaska, who built a fun, relationship-based event that brings together media and brands like no trade show ever could. If you're thinking of launching an event business, this episode will have some amazing tips to get things running. For more analysis, show notes, and links from this interview, head to this podcast blog post at thebuildcycle.com. And be sure to follow us. We're at The Build Cycle on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in, and I will see you next episode.